The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good morning, and thank you for joining host Cheryl Esposito for an intriguing hour of Leading Conversations. Each week, Cheryl brings together big thinkers to the Voice America Business Channel. Now here's your host, Cheryl Esposito. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito. Today, our guest is William Arntz. Will is a film producer, director, screenwriter, and just an all-around big thinker extraordinaire. He's president of Captured Light Productions and very well known for his production, What the Bleep Do We Know?, produced in 2004 and still going strong all across the country and around the globe. His current project, known as Ghetto Physics, is in, it's actually out of production. It's actually um, in theaters, various places around the country, and will be out on DVD in October of this year. Will, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. It's great to have you here. So where are you today? I am in Aspen, Colorado. Oh, nice. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, let's see, it's, it's August in Aspen. What's that like? It's uh, beautiful summer weather. It'll probably get up to about 82 today. The sun's out. Maybe some thunderstorms in the afternoon. It's uh, very, very, you know, beautiful summer weather. Mm, nice. Summer in Colorado is special. Yeah. So you, you tend to travel a lot. Where do you tend to hang out? Well, either I have a house um, in the mountains above Boulder, Colorado. So I'm either there or Santa Barbara. Oh, okay. So let's talk about, let, let's go way back. Let's go back to the very, very young, early life of Will Arntz. So, you know, Will, as I, many of our guests or many of our, our listeners will have seen your film, What the Bleep Do We Know, and are familiar with um, the concept. And I have seen it, I remember when it first came out, and I saw it, and we went back and saw it the second time the next day because we were so um, amazed and impressed and knew we had just missed so much in the film. And true, we had. And, you know, that film has made such an impression all around. But I'm wondering, what does the mind of a child who becomes the Will Arntz who can produce something like that, who can think that big. What is the, the child like? Ah, uh, what was the child like? Well, I'll tell you a, a little story that <clears throat> probably will surprise a few people, but, you know, it's early in the okay. morning. Okay. And uh, this kind of sums the way I was as a kid. Um, I was out, I guess I was like in eighth grade or something, and I'm out in the yard doing something with my dad, and my dad points out something he's, he finds interesting. And I just kind of glance over it, I'm like, yeah, whatever, and I go back to whatever I'm doing. And he starts laughing. He just starts laughing. I'm like, what's so funny? And he goes, you know, you're like a dog. If you can't eat it or screw it, you piss on it. <laughs> <laughs> I told 
thought that'd be a little surprising. Okay. Now, the, what that meant was I, the things that I was interested in, and I was really, really, really interested in, and if something didn't interest me, I just ignored it. Mm. So, you know, when I was, when I was younger, um, I had a couple of very good friends, and we, we made movies for fun. This was back, oh, really? you know, with Dad's, you know, old 8-millimeter camera, no sync sound, no video. Right. And we lived in a little farm town in Pennsylvania, so there wasn't much to do. So we amused ourselves by making things. So I sort of had that as a background um, all along of making things. And then, you know, I, but I got into physics because I liked that. And um, that kind of was, was what I was into as a kid. I mean, at one point when I was a kid, I thought, oh, I'm going to grow up and be a big Hollywood filmmaker. Uh, um, but then I went to school and started doing math and physics and really liked that and figured I was going to go be a Ph.D. physicist. But I decided to become a hippie instead. <laughs> well, you know, as I think about that kid, he must have been um, gotten a lot of reinforcement from the parents who said, you know, be who you are. Uh, no, actually. Not at all. I mean, this was the generation where, you know, now nowadays, of course, parents kind of tend to dote over their kids. Right. Make a big deal about, oh, look at the cool things little Johnny's doing. But right. back then it was just like, well, they were just happy that I was self, you know, self-amused and didn't uh. get into trouble. And, you know, and it was kind of, um, it was a very, it was a farm town. So the fact that yeah. we were making movies and doing stuff like that and writing plays was no big deal. I mean, if you grow up in New York and your kid does that, then it's like, ooh, that's so cool. Right, right. Back then it was like, well, you know, they could have been painting barns. They could have been making motorcycles, but instead they made movies. Oh, well, no big deal. And I uh-huh. think I kind of liked that approach. It just wasn't a big deal. It's just kind of what we did. Right. Because right. we were weird. Because <laughs> you were weird. But you didn't think you were weird then. No. I mean, I kind of knew we were a little eccentric. Like one of my friends I made... Um, films with he at one point he goes we need to have a rock and roll band we're like okay he goes we're going to call it the stagnant waters (laughs) and it was basically kind of parody we would make fun of you know whatever we were making fun of these days we weren't very good and but we amused ourselves so you know that was kind of what we had to do because there was not much amusement going on and vcrs didn't exist or anything right right so you had to be creative and use your imagination a whole lot more than some kids do these days. Yeah. So fast forward to um, going to college, and you go to Penn State, and as you said, you know, you became interested in physics. What about physics was intriguing to you? Well, I mean, part of it was I was always really good in science and math, mm-hmm. so you got to major in something. So I figured, well, I'll I'll do that because. You know, the practical part of me is like, I know I can get a good job when I get out of college. Mm-hmm. So, but then I started getting into it, and there's a kind of a moment where, where when you're doing, for me, doing physics, there was a way, I remember solving this problem about a, a block sliding down an inclined plane. doesn't sound very exciting, but the fact that I could do the calculations and predict the time at which it hit the bottom there's kind of a little godlike feeling, like, oh, my God, I can, yeah. I can predict what things are going to do. I understand how the universe works. And um, so that, that was, like, really cool. So then I got into it more and more, and then eventually I started taking all the advanced physics, quantum and relativity, and got really interested in this whole time and space. What is time and space? And I thought physics was going to tell me that. And after a couple years of studying it, 
I kind of realize, no, they weren't going to tell uh, me what time and space is. They'd tell me certain laws. They wouldn't tell me why the laws existed. They wouldn't really say anything about why. They would just basically give you equations that modeled what happens, but they didn't say what happens. Uh, so that was the point at which I started getting interested in metaphysics. Well, so you spent some time working for as you call in, in corporate life, you know, Pratt and & Whitney, and, and worked on things that you describe as um, Star Wars-like projects. Ah, that was after I graduated from college. They, had this, um, they were making these huge gas dynamic lasers. <clears throat> gas dynamic just means you, you jam a bunch of high-energy gas through nozzles shoot a laser beam through it, which then causes it to laze even more. And the idea was you're going to stick these in a 747 and fly them up at 70,000 feet. And when the Ruskies shoot a missile, you, you aim your big flashlight at them and melt them out of the sky. Oh. Uh-huh. <laughs> which, which theoretically is a really good idea because otherwise you do the anti-missile missile. So they shoot the missile, you shoot the missile with that missile, and then you wave. Oh, yeah. And hopefully it hits. And yeah. if it hits, it blows it up. If it doesn't, You've just lost Detroit. Okay. So, so the idea with the, the flashlight is you knew right away. You just shine it, hit the button, and then it would melt it out of the sky. And oh. eventually they realized that doing it at 70,000 feet wasn't any good because the atmosphere would absorb too much of the energy. So that's when they started deciding, oh, we're going to put them up on platforms in space, and that became the Star Wars program. Okay. So it was the same technology. It's just put them on satellites instead of 747s. Got it, got it. Well, and so did you become bored with that? or Because it sounds like at that point um, you started looking for other things to do. Well, my game plan from, from day one was I was going to work a year and a half, save up my money, quit, and then drive around the country for a year. And, like I said, be a hippie again. Ah. And so that was my plan because I always had this thing – about money. It's like, with money, do you want things or do you want freedom? Mm. And, you know, I'd rather live in a teepee and be free than have to get up and go to work every day and work, you know, 50 weeks a year and then you get two weeks off. Because I saw my dad doing that and he was miserable. And so when I had this job, I saw all my other peers who just graduated from college and they were out buying fast cars and, you know, spending all the money they earned. And I just said, you know, I'd rather have a year of my life. So that's what I did. So the plan was always to work a year and a half and quit, which is what I did. Wow, that's quite a plan. Yeah, it worked. But you, but you didn't stop being interested in the world. And, you know, that, that focus that you began to develop on um, what is beyond what you have on this earth, you know, is, is a little interesting. You... You moved into studying meditation, and this story about your Buddhist teacher, you've got to tell it because it's pretty interesting in how you ultimately ended up making money and having freedom. Uh, well, kind of what happened is in, in my 20s, I, was, I started reading all this metaphysics, um, Rudolf Steiner and some of the early theosophists and they were into that stuff. And I would read all the, the sort of technical stuff, and then I would get to the bit about you have to meditate and purify yourself. And I was like, yeah, 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 I don't care about that stuff. So, <laughs> yeah, it's like, I don't, I don't need that. I'll figure it out. Uh-huh. So, 
you know, after about six or seven years of that and trying to meditate on my own and really getting nowhere, I finally realized, you know, maybe a teacher would be a good idea. So um, I went to see this guy. His name was Rama. And um, even though the name was Rama, he was a, you know, a white guy like myself. So, um, you know, I started studying with him. And he had a very interesting approach. He called it American Buddhism. And it was basically adapting the principles of Buddhism to modern life in America. And he said, you know, when you're in the West or in the East, you put on an ochre robe, there's a certain sort of respect you gain. You know, you're a monk, you're doing a spiritual quest, and mm. society appreciates you. He goes, in the West, if you do that, they think you're a wacko. <laughs> you know, you get basically disdain. He said, uh-huh. you, know what they, you know what they respect in the West? Money. So he said, everyone's got to learn computers and programming computers because, you can A, you can always get a job, B, they're good jobs, and C, it actually develops your own mind in a way similar to Buddhist meditation. Really? Mm-hmm. And that's true, actually, because if your mind is really clear, you mm-hmm. can program very well. Or, you know, it's one of those things. You can, if you have a little task, you can write 20 lines of code that will do it. Or you can write five pages of code and it'll do it. Right, right. If your mind is clear, you'll do it in 20 lines. So that was the big program, and eventually it became, okay, now what you have to do is write a, write a software product, build a company around it, sell it for millions. That became everyone's spiritual task. Wow. So that's why I did my first company was because that was the task. And I'm like, okay, well, and, and that one I was... You know, I kind of like that spiritual task because I <laughs> yeah. programmed computers, you know, in various jobs, and I could do it. So uh-huh. off I went. So, so I just have to ask: Was everybody in your group a computer geek? Pretty much. They they didn't start out that way, but by the end, pretty much everyone, you know, not a hundred percent, but most of the people were. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, so that company, um, that that product was Autosys, and it became, it's still used these days, right? Oh my God, it's the goose that laid the golden egg. Yeah. That yeah. that product by now has generated over a billion dollars in revenue. Oh my God. Let's say I didn't sell it for that. Uh, <laughs> well, but it gave you enough to understand money and freedom at the same time, right? Yeah, and when I sold it, it's like, okay, I could keep going and build it up, but I was tired because I basically did it without any startup money. You know, it was just ah. basically sweat equity. And um, so at that point, you know, I had enough. So I said, well, I'm not going to live extravagantly, but I never have to work again. So mm-hmm. that's when I sold the company. So fast forward to um, it was the 90s when you sold your company, right? Yeah. Yeah, and so you sold the company. You once again had time on your hands. And when did you start looking at the concept of what the bleep? Well, what happened was I left. I left that teacher, and then um, a few years later, a friend of mine was going out to see Ramtha out in Washington. You know, Ramp is a channeled entity, and I had a whole attitude about that. I'm like, yeah, channeled entity is kind of a little flaky, but my friend was going, I said, I'll go along. And I sort of went with the idea, like, okay, I've had a teacher for many years. I can kind of, you know, I know about this stuff. You know, I had a total attitude, right? 
And I get there, and I listen to Ramp, and after about two hours, it's like, holy shit, this is the real deal. Mm-hmm. So I started, I became a student of Ramtha, and a lot of the things um, in What the Bleep are things that we, you know, he was teaching out of his school. So I would say, you know, a lot of it was basically of What the Bleep was um, based on those teachings. And I started getting a sense that when I would tell friends who weren't into it, about the stuff I was learning, everyone got really fascinated. And that's when a little light went off and said, you know, oh, I remember there was a, um, uh, an event once, and Ramsa's going, going around up on the stage saying this and that, and he, at one point he says, someone should write a book about all this. Someone needs to write a book. And I just sort of said to myself, eh, someone, fuck, hell, someone needs to make a movie. Uh. And it was one of those moments. I said it, and suddenly everything got really still. Got written, not that anything externally got really still. Any, everything internally got really still. Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> what just happened? And so it began. Well, so we're going to talk more about what happened exactly when we come back right after this break. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexasaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. Are you wondering if that MBA keeps you on the forefront of today's marketing innovations? Marketing has become a complex combination of both art and science. Our program will break these concepts down into bite-sized solutions that you and your business can actually use. Listen to Bite-Sized Marketing every week, where Brandon LaRock and his guests will demystify the latest developments in marketing technology for today's Internet age. Tune in to Bite-Sized Marketing, live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Business Channel. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. And welcome back to Leading Conversations. This morning we're speaking with William Arntz, who's the producer, director, screenwriter for What the Bleep Do We Know? Okay, Will, so you had this moment of internal silence, and you knew there was a movie coming soon. Yeah. Talk about that. Well, when it, fir- when it first started out, I mean, really I'd never made movies except, you know, when I was a, a kid. So... It- I thought, well, what I'm going to do is it's just going to be a very simple documentary. You know, some of it would have Ramtha doing his teaching thing. Some of it would be, 
you know, just sort of illustrating with some sort of, I don't know, nature scenes. I wasn't quite sure, but it was going to be a little fifty thousand dollar, you know, uh, production that maybe we'd release on DVDs, and we were lucky sell five hundred copies of. That's how it started. Mm. But what happened was, as I start again, as I started telling people about it, I mean, friends not interested. People got really, really interested. You know, and some of it was like the, the quantum stuff and some of the overlays with certain of the metaphysical principles. Some of it was the bit about addic- being addicted to emotions. and There was a biochemical basis for that. And, you know, the whole thing about creating reality, which wasn't really so much out in the public then. So, right. you know, as I started talking to people, I realized that a lot of people were interested. So in my mind, it jumped up to the next level up. It was going to be a Discovery Channel thing. Ah. going to do something and sell it to Discovery Channel or History Channel. And that's when I pulled uh, Mark Vicente, one of the other filmmakers, in. Um, he had been a DP for some independent films. Right. And he was at the school, too, so, you know, that was the next step. And then as we worked more on it, I just, I just got kind of carried away and decided I wanted it to be a, a theatrical picture that would play around the world. And that was when I pulled, we pulled Betsy in, because then Mark said, uh, we need more help. And Met, uh, Betsy hadn't directed any films, but she had produced some um, low-budget-type indie films. Mm. So we pulled her in. And, you know, by now I'm all inspired. I'm like, oh, this is great. We're going to, you know, it's going to play in theaters. And everyone, not that I really knew that many people, but people who had some association with the film industry, they all just, you know, looked at me and said, you're crazy. No one's going to go see, a th- sit in a theater and see a film about you know quantum mechanics and spirituality. Yeah. It ain't going to happen. And you know, I also got the attitude. Apparently, there's a lot of um, successful software entrepreneurs who decide they're movie makers and they go into make movies and it really doesn't work very well. So that's kind of what everyone just kind of looked at me and said, "Well, uh-huh. there's, an- there's another one. <laughs> there's another one. There's another one." <laughs> well, what do you think it is that? got people so connected to the concept you know it's what made them so curious about this well i mean one thing it's the truth (laughs) Mm. you know and people you know people resonate with that and it's and it was something i mean there was really two groups of people who saw it one was the choir people who had been studying spirituality but a lot of those people hadn't ever really uh, dove into the science part of it. So it was much more of an uh, intuitive or a, a belief system thing. And so for them, once, you know, when we introduced the scientists, and these are, you know, intelligent, Ph.D., thoughtful folks who have a lot of research, in some cases, backing up what they say, for a lot of people it gave them, in the, in the spiritual community, it gave them uh, uh, more of an intellectual basis so when their friend said, you're a flake ball, they're like, no, I'm not. And here's the experiments going on. So I think on the one hand, that was one crew that went to it. And the other crew was the folks who were sort of the uh, sleeping mystics, I call them, mm-hmm. who had sort of an intuitive grasp of everything, but no one had ever laid it out. And we got a lot of emails, people saying, you know, I've thought this way all my life, and I yeah. thought I was crazy. Yeah. You know, and people say, yeah, I sat in the movie theater and I just tears were rolling down my face because my whole life I thought I was crazy. And now I find out there's a lot of other people 
who feel this way. And that was the cool thing about being in the movie theater in public. And then say, and then I'd look around the theater and I realized there was a whole room of us. Wow. And for people that just, that was just, you know, psychic meltdown. I mean, it just. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, how do you think this has impacted the whole concept of, you know, the whole metaphysical world and the whole, and beyond that, you know, into the mainstream? You know, what impact has this movie had? Well, our, our goal was to have 100 million people around the planet see it. Mm. And I, I think we've pretty well hit that between, you know, uh, theatrical showing and DVDs and the, the um, all the, the piracy that went on. <laughs> yeah. Which was quite extensive, I hear. Mm. Um, so, you know, that was the goal. And, you know, what impact has it had? Well, you know, back, part of the reason I wanted to make this film was having been in spiritual practices for 20 years, it was always like being looked down upon or second-class citizen or you're in a cult. There was always a weird connotation. And part of it was like I was tired of that, you know, and it was like, no, I'm not a flake ball. So I think that, you know, getting these ideas out into the public in such a dramatic way shifted things. Like when, in the, like the year 2000, if you told people you were doing yoga, they'd kind of like look at you and raise an eyebrow and like, yeah, yeah, isn't that some weird mm-hmm. Hindu thing? Mm-hmm. You know, or if you told someone you were going to some transformational conference where you're going to learn about your inner self, you know, they would they just kind of roll their eyes. Whereas mm-hmm. now, of course, yoga's big business. I mean, right. you see yoga everywhere. I mean, and a lot of these transformational technologies are now taught in corporations. And meditation, I mean, certain, there are certain medical plans where they actually now recommend, okay, you should go meditate. Ten years ago, they would have never said that. You know, the, the religious right would have been all over them. So I think that in that sense, you know, getting the film out there, you know, obviously it wasn't the only factor, but it was, I'd say, a big factor in getting people so they weren't so um, put off by all of the um, spiritual principles. It's almost as if the science gave people permission. Mm-hmm. The science that you presented in the film gave people permission to um, accept that there is something beyond me, the physical. Mm-hmm. And it seems that Interestingly enough, um, as you said, yoga's big business. Um, as it became more a wanted commodity, money came into the game, and then it became more accepted. Yep. And I mean, and results. I mean, people. I got. We got emails from Olympic athletes who said, you know, after watching your movie, I was able to improve my my performance. I made it to the Olympics because of it. So once, you know, and it, so there was a very practical um, thing to it. And that's the interesting thing about sports. There's a way in which they don't get dogmatic. They just want to get better. So they were, yeah. you know, they, they were very motivated. And so, you know, that sort of thing, this, people started using it. And it was like, wow, living by these. I mean, for me, this whole thing about really accepting you create your reality is life-changing. Because, you know, you can't be a victim anymore, among other right. things. Right, right. So, um, you know, and so I think for a lot of people it was just, it was like, holy Moses, this works. So that that then gets it much easier that to tell your boss or to be the boss and say, you know, 
we're going to bring some of this in here because I know it'll improve improve the performance of my company. So, mm-hmm. money talks. Rama was right after all. Yeah. So, how do you use this in your own life? Well, really, as I just mentioned, the big thing is this thing, this thing about creating reality. Yeah. So, when something happens that I don't like necessarily, instead of getting pissed off about it, I'm like, oh, that's interesting. That somehow is a reflection of what's going on internally, or there's some lesson here or something to uh, point out, or if there's a certain situation I keep running into over and over that I don't like, it's like, okay, well, I keep bringing this back up. Why? Instead of just, like, blowing it off or being angry about it, it's like, okay, why? And that, to me, is a huge, huge change. Well, and and then how do you engage with people I mean, not everybody is that evolved, right? Mm-hmm. And so there are people around you or people that you um, are involved with who don't have that same experience. You know, how do you engage with them when they're in the middle of a meltdown or they're looking at you and saying, don't tell me I create my own reality, you did this. How do you handle that? Um, well, it, it really depends. I mean, kind of in general, it's... I mean, it's like, well, everyone's on their journey and everyone's at their level, and that's kind of where they're at. And, mm. you know, people don't, want to, people don't want to hear it. It's just going to make them angry. I just shut up. Mm. Um, you know, and, but some people, um, you know, you sort of explain it and say, hey, well, here's what I think, and then, um, then they'll listen. I mean, it's all relative because, you know, the stage that I'm at, I could run into, you know, Eckhart Tolle walking down the street and tell him what's my problems, and he, you know, internally might roll his eyes at me, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, evolution, you just can't get too high on the horse and say, oh, I have it all figured out. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, well, here's, here's what, you know, kind of makes sense for me. Here's, here's what I do. Here's what something you may want to look at. But, you know, if you don't want to go there, you don't have to. That's why they invented free will. Mm. No pun intended. <laughs> free will, I like it. <laughs> so, you know, it, it seems to me that this um, this way of being, this way of of thinking and living, requires some level of um, practice or discipline. You know, how do you keep your spiritual muscle toned? Ah, uh, well, part of it, I, I live a pretty quiet lifestyle you know i don't really i still don't know really anything hardly about the movie industry i don't go to la very much you know my places i live my place in colorado is up on 20 acres and up in the mountains Mm. and so for me a lot of it is just you know more kind of quiet time and a lot of time in nature i mean i can i can easily spend an hour or two a day sitting on my front porch watching clouds Mm. that's pretty much all i do and then then you know the bunny shows up Eat grass for a while. I watch the bunny. The chipmunks come. Then the the hummingbirds show up. Um, and then you know the chipmunks chase each other until the, the squirrels come, and they chase everybody. You know, it's kind of, it's kind of a little animal farm up in my house. And for me, I just that's kind of I think, you know, plugging into nature like that um, kind of rejuvenates me. And then you know, aside from that, it's just living according to the the principles that you believe are true. 
I mean, one thing for me is I just don't want to be a hypocrite. I find hypocrisy um, disgusting, actually. I find it very distasteful in any form, and especially, you know, my own. So, and if I didn't, then I'd be double hypocritical. So, um, you know, so it's just really applying those things. So when when events happen to me, it's like, okay, what's what's the lesson here? Why why is this happening? And if it's painful, why why is the universe trying to um, you know slap you into waking up? So that's mm. kind of how I do it. You know that takes that takes discipline, and that takes a real willingness to set ego aside, and that's a very Buddhist principle. Would you call yourself Buddhist? Mm, not really. I mean, to me, it's not even a, a discipline. It's just, I mean, it's just kind of karma. I mean, it's like you realize if, if something's coming to you and it's, it's, it's unpleasant, it's an obstacle, mm-hmm. well, if you don't deal with it now, it's going to come back again. Mm-hmm. So, you know, blowing it off or getting pissed or whatever you want to do, that, that's just kind of being stupid. Now, the Buddhists would say that's just ignorance. You know, there's no, mm-hmm. there's no evil, there's only ignorance, because if you right. really understood the way the universe works, the way karma works, and the way things always come back, you wouldn't do anything that would be harmful to someone else, because then it's going to come back on you. And if you would, it's just because you don't realize. And that's kind of, you know, what I think, and, that, and there'll be situations, you know, dealing with people in business where, you know, I could kind of take advantage of people. You know, I could get more for me and less for them. But, you know, it's always like, but what's fair? How, how would I want to be treated if I was them? And you know, on the one hand, that sounds like a moral or ethical uh, position, and I guess it is, but really, it's just like, well, this is the way the universe works. Mm. And if you screw them, you're screwing yourself. And that's yeah. just the way it is. So, I mean, I can't, I mean, I think about these people on Wall Street who, you know, drive the Mississippi uh, Teachers Union bankrupt and cheat everyone out of their retirement, and, and then they build $20 million houses you know, wherever, yeah. you know, and to me, it's like, God, why would you do that? The karma for that is just so disgusting, but, mm. you know, so painful. It's going to be so painful, but, you know, people do it, so. Mm. Well, it <laughs> makes me wish that our politicians had a good dose of what the bleep do we know. They may change their ways. <laughs> uh, yeah, who knows? I mean, they're, they're, they're pretty deep in the Maya, pretty deep in the illusion at this point, so that, but that would be nice. That would be nice. Well, they are, and yet, you know, if we create our reality, then we must be creating this collective craziness, right? True. True. Which is why I made ghetto physics. Ah. Which is why, because at a certain point, you know, know, I did what the bleep, and, you know, that was very much about someone's own internal process. And after a while, I just started realizing, well, wait a minute, if we're all connected and three-quarters of the planet is miserable and suffering and doesn't have enough food, you think that doesn't affect you? Do you think you can, you know, turn your back on it? Or as my collaborator in that Ghetto Physics movie, E-Ray, said, there's so many of us now, we can't look away. And isn't that neat? There's so many of us now, we can't look away. We can't ignore the rest of humanity because, you know, we're everywhere, and you know, and all our thoughts intermingle, all our energies intermingle. You know, you you can't go to the cave anymore and just work on. I don't think, you know, work on your own enlightenment because yeah, yeah. 
because we're all in there and it's getting more intense and crazier. Well, we're going to learn about ghetto physics right after this break. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. We've just come off of the Great Recession, but we're not out of the woods yet. What will our world be like when we get back on course? Will the course even be the same as it was? For the answers you need to weathering this recovery, tune in every weekend to Going for Broke, how the new normal can work for you with your host, Eric Hovey. We'll clue you into businesses, individuals, and communities that are already making a difference and show you how you can do the same. Going for Broke airs live every Saturday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern Time on Voice America Business. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexasaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. Do you really understand the global economy? The media paints a certain picture, but are you really getting the full story or only half of it? Listen to Strategic Wealth, Choosing Simplicity in Finance with your host, Stephen Ayer. This program will bring a full and objective look at the global economy and help you sort through the bias of traditional media so that you can completely understand today's economic theories and make the right decisions in your portfolio. Strategic Wealth airs live every Thursday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Business. Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. And welcome back to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito. Our guest today is Will Arns. So, Will, your most recent production is Ghetto Physics. Tell us what this is. Well, I'll, I'll tell you because you'll probably ask this anyway, um, sort of how I got involved in it. Okay. It, it, the way I got involved was after I did What the Bleep. That had been like a, a dream of mine for years to make movies. And then to make a movie with a spiritual thing that would happen around the world, I mean, to me, that was the ultimate achievement. And so, you know, and before that, you know, making millions and doing that thing, that was like a big, you know, that's another mountain to climb. And I kind of had this thing after what the bleep, I'm like, Will, you've been climbing these mountains all your life, and you always think when you get to the top, then life will be wonderful. And you get to the top, and it is wonderful for a bit, and then you're you again. And... I just started thinking, you know, this whole thing about mountain climbing to get somewhere, I think, you know, I've been reading in the spiritual books forever that it's not, you know, get, arriving there is the process, right? Right. I'm like, you know, maybe that's really true. So I just decided that I was going to pull the plug. I'm like, you know, I don't really have to do anything anymore because to prove myself or because I think climbing the next mountain is going to be wonderful. I'm done. 
so I spent about six months being done and watching clouds and chipmunks. And then the thought occurred to me, I was like, well, but, Will, if you could do something that would help people, because I started to feel like oh, I'm being just selfish. If you, if you can do something to help people, would you? So I had a little talk with the universe. I'm like, yeah, if I can do something to help people, I'd be happy to do it because, you know, I have the time and resources, but I don't want to come up with it anymore. You know, this thing about me creating my reality. Uh-huh. I started thinking, all this I create my reality, the bug in the program is the I part. Because uh-huh. if I am always creating my reality, I'm always creating more me. And now I'm stuck in a loop, and I'm always more me. It's just like more more me. And, you know, the spiritual journey is less me, less of the ego personality self, right? Uh-huh. So I'm like, I'm not going to create anymore. So universe, if you want something to do it, make me an offer I can't refuse. So uh-huh. about a month later, I get this DVD from E. Ray, his name's E. Ray Brown. He had put together a hour-long pilot of this film called Ghetto Physics. And he got it to me because he saw what the bleep and said, Don, these are the perfect people to work with. And I watched it, and I said, oh, my God, here's the offer I can't refuse. And we were off and running. So tell us the premise of Ghetto Physics. Well, the original title used to be uh, Ghetto Physics. Will the real pimps and hoes please stand up? Mm. And it's a very, you know, street-wise approach, and it's basically saying, look, the dynamics you see on the street, you know, and the most basic of which is the, the, the pimp and the prostitute uh, relationship, that's a fundamental archetypal relationship, which you see through all levels of power, because it's a power relationship. And it's the same thing you see um, in advertising, in politics, in corporations, in religion. It's the basic thing that you see. You have someone on top, and they're exploiting someone underneath for their own good. And um, so that's the basic premise. Will the real pimps and hoes please stand up? The real ones aren't the ones on the street. The real ones are like the, the clowns in uh, Congress now who can't do anything for the people. They're only you know, doing it for their um, private interest groups to pay them all the money, and they could care less about what's happening to the average person. You know, or the the hedge fund people who, you know, do all these economic things, and, or Enron, or, you know, the list goes on and on. Mm-hmm. But it's like, but those folks are so slick about how they do it, and they spend so much money on propaganda, that everyone's snowed under. You, you kind of don't see all the manipulations that are happening around us to get, for these people to get you to do what they want. They pimp you, right? Well, that's so, really interesting. So that the, the concept is that the... Um, the street game, prostitution, pimps, is transparent. Everybody knows what the game is. Everybody buys into it and plays their part. And so there's no hidden agenda. And yep. yet the, the process um, in business or in politics plays out with this pretense that we're doing it for the good of others. We're doing it for the good of others, or we're educating you, or, you know, they, there's a million ways in which they do it. It's like, you know, and, and some of it's subliminal. Oh, everyone, if you buy this toothpaste, you'll get laid. Mm, yeah. You know, yeah. That's, the, that's the premise underneath the, right. you know, right. and they, they put this out there, and so they're basically pimping you on, your, on sexuality mm. and acting like it's all about, you know, your toothpaste. Right. And 
it's so common that, you know, we don't even see it. Well, and so it makes me immediately think about, so what do I do every day? You know, in my work as an executive coach, when I'm working with CEOs and senior leaders and um, I'm trying to, quote, help them, you know, my job is to help them to see more of who they are, right, get get into the core of who they are so that they can be more authentic, so that they can be in touch with themselves and um, that their truth is more their truth and not a layered-on being. And so then I look at that and I think, well, how is it that I am then playing that out? Well, I mean, kind of one of the things we get into in the movie, uh, I hope this addresses your question, is, you know, all those layers you're saying, you're trying to get to the authentic self. Right. And, you know, it's all those layers that are put on you, you could say, are just a bunch of, you're being pimped. In other words, yeah, yeah. you know, you're basically convinced that if you have a BMW and a Mercedes in the driveway, you've made it. Mm. So, you know, if you really believe that, and society, of course, puts that out. You know, the Western society really puts out heavily materialism yeah. because it drives the economics. So right. that's how they benefit. So these dreams get put out there. And the thing we deal with in the movie is what's your dream? What's your true dream? And start looking at, at peeling the layers of the onion. And the ideas that you have about your life, about who you are, about what's valuable, a lot of that is just society or advertisers or, you know, politicians or, of course, religion. I mean, that's a huge one. You know, right. they, they tell you who you are and what you're supposed to be. And, you know, part of this is look, saying look and seeing. Always ask the question, who is, who is getting uh, an advantage who gets advantage by adopting their worldview? Mm. You know, and that's how you kind of like in the, they used to say, follow the money. Right. You know, right. follow the money. Who's, who's getting paid, the payola, for you believing what you believe? Yeah. And, you know, we're very careful in the movie saying, look, there's no moral judgment about, you know, be whoever you want to be, but make sure it's who you want to be, yeah. not who someone or something else wants. Mm. Well, and... I've, that my mind goes in a couple different directions. One is um, that when we let other people tell us who we need to be or what to believe, you know, it really makes us lazy spiritualists. You know, we don't have to question. We mm-hmm. just have to show up and be that way. The other is um, in uh, back in some interview that I saw you do. Um, you talked about judgment as an attempt for emotional superiority. Do you see that, that those are connected, the sense of judgment and emotional superiority are connected to if I just be who somebody else wants me to be, then I then have a rationale to judge others? Yeah, I mean, you see, I, I see that mostly, of course, in religion mm-hmm. where you adopt the whole thing, and it's the truth with a capital T, and anyone who disagrees with you is wrong. And so you get to feel, you know, superior. And, you know, who knows if you've um, examined things, and that's really true. And not to say that, you know, all religions or religious beliefs are bad, certainly, Mm -hmm. but I think you see that a lot. 
Um, but it's really, when, in some respects, it's the same thing with nationalism. Mm-hmm. You know, when you, you know, every country thinks that you know they're the greatest in the world. Yeah. And therefore, it gets pretty easy to go go out and keep having a war in Afghanistan because they're the right. bad guys and we're the good guys. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it just gets very easy to. Once someone buys, I mean, that's how, the, I mean, this whole war in Iraq and Afghanistan, they pimped that whole thing. Um, you know, patriotism, you know, we've got to go over there to, to defend democracy. And we had some interviews with some people in ghetto physics, John Perkins was one, who, you know, talked about all the coups that America does. They spout democracy, where then they have democratic elected leaders that they'll go in and do a coup on. And it's public right. information that that happens, and yet, right. you know, our leaders get up there and we're the champions of democracy. And it's mm-hmm. like, so then people go out there and go over to Iraq to affect democracy, and it's like, <laughs> it's not democracy, everyone, it's oil. Hello? Yep. Well, so, what kind of reaction have you had to the film? Well, <laughs> the reaction is, until people see it, they're put off by it. Mm. You know, they hear, you know, they hear you know, kind of the, the ghetto, and it's, you know, E. Ray came up with a basic premise, and he lives in the hood in, in um, L.A. So, you know, some people are like, oh, I don't want to see, you know, it's kind of this black film, it's probably going to be angry about ghetto. So you get that kind of reaction. Mm-hmm. Um, among the African-American intellectual community, a lot of them was like, no, we left there, we don't want to hear anything about it. Yeah, yeah. But it's funny, once people see it, everyone loves it. But it definitely pushes buttons. I mean, I mean, we interviewed some uh, prostitutes and some pimps in the movie because, well, you know, we had to. Um, and, you know, some of the things they say, it's kind of, it definitely kind of puts you a little on edge. But, you know, it's interesting. You see, you know, some guy, you know, one of the pimps talking about, you know, his women and what he does, and you think, oh, that guy is so horrible. But then you, then you like, look at a Wall Street guy or, you know, a politician and what they do and how they'll ruin, you know, millions of lives with the stroke of the pen. And it's like, these people, you have this heavy judgment about some guy on the street, and yet these, these quote-unquote leaders, he's like, oh, well, that, that's okay. So, you know, it's really, I, I think it's somewhat indicative of the times that it's, you know, you kind of have to turn up the volume at this point and, you know, kind of a bit get in people's face and say, hey, look, look at, look at the world we're living in, and, you know, do you like it? So, you know, it's definitely, uh, it's definitely different than what the bleep, that's for sure. And so it, it's a little audacious, mm-hmm. and, you know, as a creative filmmaker um, and an artist, I've always considered artists to be um, on the leading edge of where we're going as a society. And... And always putting something out there that provokes in some way, and certainly ghetto physics is provocative. <laughs> yeah. What does ghetto physics provoke in you? In me? Yeah. Well, it provokes a certain um, let's call it a holy rage mm-hmm. about the uh, injustices that happen in the world and how people in power use their power to basically enslave people, economically, emotionally, mentally, and they do it for their own good. Um, and when I see the, the, the strong preying on the quote-unquote weak, for some reason that just, it 
really bothers me. It really mm-hmm. bothers me. So me, it provoked that sort of thing like, you know, how dare you do that? How dare you, you know, steal from people under the guise of corporate sponsorship or Enron or any of those, any of those sort of stories? And, you know, I think those stories need to be told and people have to realize um, what, what is really running the world right now. And at some point, the only way it's going to change is people, people are going to stand up and say, no, that's not acceptable. The fact that you're in Congress and you're getting these huge payolas from oil and you vote all the time in oil's interests and you're going to leave office with $10 million in the bank, that's not acceptable anymore. You know, and all that information is out there. But right now people are, you know, there's a way in which I think people want to just say, well, you know, I got my big screen TV. I'm just going to kind of retreat a little bit and hope I weather the storm. Mm. You know, which you can do. I mean, it's free world again. But I think that, you know, most people, if you said, do you think the world needs to change, pretty much everyone goes, oh, yeah. But then the question is, if not us, who? Well, and so the world needs to change, and if I'm creating my own reality, that means I need to change. Right. And it just could be on, you know, what you focus on. It could be as simple as your buying habits. You know, it mm-hmm. could be, you know, it could be how you relate to people on the street. I mean, there's no, we definitely in this film don't come up with a, a formula or, a, uh, you know, sort of a how-to list. Yeah. But it's like you got to, you know, start asking questions and seeing what's happening in the world. And, and when there's something you don't like, you know, you stand up. Please stand up. Yeah, please stand up. Please stand up. So, Will, I know people are going to want to know more and want to know where they can see ghetto physics and where they can download What the Bleep and all that good stuff. So what do you want to tell them? Well, um, on ghetto physics, be- before I say that, I just want to add one thing. You know, I'm talking about all this sort of rage against the machine and, and whatnot. I want to add that the, the ghetto physics, we have quite a bit of humor in that, too. Mm-hmm. Kind of like what the bleep has some funny stuff. Yeah. You know, and, and something like that, you know, I didn't want to make a movie. Some of these movies, you see, I just saw Inside Job, which is very good about the economics. And at the end, you just want to go and blow up Wall Street, right? Yeah, yeah. And I didn't want people to leave the film feeling angry and pissed off. Mm. I want them to feel sort of like awake and inspired and empowered. And so, you know, and part of that is having humor. Yeah, this stuff is happening in the world and it's not so great and we don't like it, but, you know, if you get too serious about it, then, you know, it, that kind of doesn't work either. So it's, it's actually kind of a fun movie to watch anyway. All right. Um, so we got, we have a, a website, ghettophysics.com. Mm-hmm. And um, what we're doing is last week in September, first week in October, we've reached out to lots of organizations that said, look, if you guys want to show uh, the film for free, for your organization maybe use it as a fundraiser, you can. Just get on our website and sign up for it. And then they, they can buy DVDs at cost so they can use it actually as a fundraiser. But we just wanted to get it out there. Um, to really start the viral campaign of people liking it and talking about it. So um, if people are listening and they have an organization that wants to do that, they get on the website, all the instructions are there. Um, if you don't, then we're DVDs go on pre-sale in about a week. Um, right. And they'll be out there, and, you know, that's kind of what we're doing. Well, you do fantastic work, Will, and it's an honor to have you here this morning. 
for folks who want to know more, you can go to ghettophysics.com. And, of course, um, what the bleep, is it whatthebleep.com? Yes, it is. Okay, whatthebleep.com. We'll keep thinking big because you're making a difference. (laughs) Keep thinking crazy, you mean. Keep thinking crazy. We love it. We, we need it. We need you. So remember, everyone, to think big because the world could be a better place because of a conversation that matters. This is Cheryl Esposito. Thank you for spending this hour with Cheryl Esposito and Leading Conversations. You can listen live every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you have a question or comment for Cheryl, please email her at leadingconversations at alexaconsulting.com. That's L-E-A-D-I-N-G-C-O-N-V-E-R-S-A-T-I-O-N-S at A-L-E-X-S-A-C-O-N-S-U-L-T-I-N-G.com. See you next week.